Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 to 21. And uh, while you turn there, let me just say how grateful Shelby and I am uh, for all of you, our Claremont Emanuel Church family. We have experienced so much life and so much joy in God here. And so it is my profound privilege uh, to preach the Word of God with you this morning. We're in Mark chapter 14, verses 12 to 21. I'll be reading from the New International Version. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover. So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they were saddened. And one by one they said to him, surely you don't mean me. It is one of the 12, he replied one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. This is God's word to us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning in need of you and to hear your voice and to receive your instruction. And so we do pray, Father, that as we hear your word, that we would be changed, that we would be encouraged and convicted, and that you would conform us into greater likeness of your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen and amen. I'm going to read a to-do list from 2018, and I invite you to guess what the list was for. You ready? Order thank you notes. Book a photographer, order cupcakes, gather childhood photographs, solidify the program, order chairs, write notes to guests, make sure the groomsmen have their suits, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Apply for a marriage license, pick up the veil. Now, that's just a snippet of our wedding to-do list, the the actual to-do list that Shelby and I made in preparation for our wedding. And I confess, uh, reading through that last week, uh, it just kind of stressed me out a little bit, thinking about (laughs) all the work that went into it. I I still can't believe that we, we got all that done and actually got married. It's true that great celebration requires great preparation. Any event planner can tell you that that it takes a lot to throw a party. 
a lot of preparation. Preparation. Last Sunday, we met a woman who, out of a heart of worship, did a recklessly beautiful thing for Jesus by anointing him with a jar of very expensive perfume. And Jesus explains that she did this in order to prepare him for his burial. And this week, we see that Jesus is also being prepared for his death. But this time, it's, it's within the context of the Passover. Now, the Passover was the greatest celebration, the, the highest holy day of the Jewish calendar. Think of it like the Christmas Eve of Israel, where everyone comes home to Jerusalem to eat and to drink and to worship God together. It's, it's actually a lot like Super Bowl Sunday, which, you know, this year is just up the road at SoFi Stadium in L.A., and... And much like the Super Bowl, people during Passover would travel from all over the nation to this city. The the whole season has been moving in anticipation to this moment. There is a, a rustle and a bustle in the streets. All the hotels are booked solid. There's anticipation in the city. And there is, of course, a lot of preparation to be done. You can see this preparation that's needed to be done in verse 12 in your Bibles. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, which in other words was the Passover festival, it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to make preparation for us to eat the Passover? In the Gospel of Mark, we see that a page is turning. We, We have finally come to the final day of Jesus' earthly life. And look at that. It's the first day of the Passover, the day to prepare the lamb. Now, what's the Passover? We, We talked about it last week, but when the Israelites were enslaved to the nation of Egypt, God sent his servant Moses to redeem, to save his people from bondage. And if you remember that story in Exodus, God sent plagues to afflict the Egyptian in hopes that the Pharaoh would let God's people go. So God turned the river into blood. He sent frogs and gnats and flies, and he killed their livestock and and sent boils to form on the Egyptians' bodies, and he sent hail and locusts and darkness, and then finally he sent the plague of the firstborn. We're going to read it here in in Exodus chapter 12 because it's really important that we understand the background of the Passover. The Lord says in Exodus 12, take a lamb without defect, slaughter it. And then in verse 7, God says, then they are to take some of the blood, put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat of the Passover lamb, roasted over a fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. 
The, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive pl- plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. So in our passage, the, the Israelites are commemorating that event. And, and in our passage, it's the first day of the festival, which is the day of preparation. So the disciples asked Jesus, where, where do you want us to go to make preparation for the Passover? So Jesus sends two of his disciples, which we know from Luke's gospel are Peter and John. And they went from Bethany, just outside Jerusalem, and they, they traveled into Jerusalem, which at this point was jam-packed. It was customary that the Passover meal had to be eaten within the walls of Jerusalem. So you can imagine that the disciples are nervous that there might not be room to celebrate it. But Jesus had prepared a room for them. And so Jesus says, you'll find a man carrying a water jar, which could not have been more obvious because at that time it was customary that women were the ones who collected the water and and carried water jars. So this guy would have stood out in a crowd. The disciples met him. He led the disciples to a house whose owner, a disciple of Jesus, had a large upstairs guest room. And so he, he knocked on the door, and, and so the disciples enter this room, and, and I, can only, I can only imagine what they say to this man. Say, uh, we, we have a reservation for Jesus, a party of 13, and uh, it says that the the text says that the room was furnished and ready. The phrase furnished and ready meant that everything was prepared except the meal. The disciples found a set table with bowls and plates and wine goblets and cushions to lay on and and everything ready for the arrival of the teacher. And then verse 16 explains, I love this. The disciples left They went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. Just as Jesus had told them. Could it have been any other way? Jesus gives instruction to his disciples, and and guess what? They found things just as Jesus said. Have you ever considered what it must have been like to be a disciple of Jesus, going from town to town, following what seemed like random instructions? Like, for example, go into the city, you'll find a donkey that's never been ridden. Say to the owner, the Lord needs it, and bring it to me. Or, you know, go fishing, and the first fish that you catch, open its mouth, and there will be a a coin, and then take that to the temple and pay the temple tax. Or go from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people, and guess what? When you heal them, they will be healed. It must have been amazing to experience on a weekly basis, the faithful instruction of Jesus. And it's no different today. Jesus still is instructing us on the way that we should go by his word and by his Holy Spirit. We as disciples of Jesus, we live this life following Jesus' commands. We, we, we ultimately, we look to him for the next word. We, we look to him for the next step. We look to him for the next assignment. And it'd be easy to to run through this passage and miss this. Yet again, Jesus is faithful to his disciples. 
And just like the disciples in our text, we too will find Jesus faithful. We too will will find Jesus' words true. We will find that when we are obedient to the word of Christ, we will find things just as Jesus told us. When we are obedient to the word of Christ, we will find things just as Jesus told us. Don't doubt him. The the task might seem a little strange to you. It it might be new, but, but you can trust him this morning. So many of us know the sweetness of trusting in Jesus as the hymn goes. Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise and just to know, thus saith the Lord. So having found everything prepared and ready in the upper room, the disciples, quote, prepared the Passover. This meant that Peter and John were responsible for making the meal. A typical Passover meal included a Passover lamb, which once it had been bought and sacrificed at the temple was then roasted over a fire. The meal also included bitter herbs and unleavened bread. We read that earlier in Exodus chapter 12. We know from Jewish tradition that the meal also included a bowl of salt water. It also included a a paste mixture of apples and dates and pomegranates and nuts called haroshef and four cups of wine which were drunk at different times during the meal. And the amazing thing that I learned while I was studying for this passage is that each of these items in the meal represented some element of Israel's salvation from Egypt. So, for example... We know that the the Passover lamb reminded the Israelites of how their homes and the lives of their firstborn were spared because of the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. The the unleavened bread was to remind them that they they had eaten in haste on their way out of Egypt. The bitter herbs reminded them of the bitterness of their slavery in Egypt. The, the the, The salt water reminded them of the tears that they shed in Egypt. It also reminded them of the Red Sea that they passed through on dry ground. The haroshet, the, the date and apple and pomegranate and nut mixture which, uh, 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 which they ate at that time, that was to remind them of the clay that they had used to, to bake bricks in Egypt. And then the four cups of wine, which we'll talk about next week during the Lord's Supper, each one represented a promise from God in Exodus chapter 6. So this meal, this this Passover meal was rich with significance. There was no menu. You know, it wasn't a guy's breakfast potluck, um, although there there were all guys there. Um, You you didn't bring your favorite meal. It was a set meal. And there was meaning in every bite. So we get to verse 17. Evening came. The sun went down. And the Jewish day begins at sundown. So, so we tend to think of the day beginning with the sunrise and uh, the day ch- changes at midnight. But for, for Jews, the day begins with the sunset and the day changes at sundown around 6 p.m. So, so the day of preparing the Passover is over and the day to celebrate the Passover, eating the meal, is here. Jesus arrived with the 12 and they began eating the meal. And, and many of you know that that meals were, were eaten from a low table where everyone is laying down on a cushion head to foot. It's one of the reasons, by the way, 
washing your feet was so important because you don't want someone's nasty feet in your face as you're eating the meal. So the 12 begin eating. It's dark out. The the room is dimly lit. The smell of fresh bread and and roasted lamb is, is wafting in the room. It's a meal of remembrance and worship. I can imagine the disciples were talking and and maybe laughing and and having hearts of celebration and thankfulness for the Lord's salvation. And then Jesus drops a bomb. Verse 18, "While, while they were reclining at table, Jesus said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me one who is eating with me. The text says that they were saddened. Literally, they were, they were grieved. They, they became sorrowful. And, and one by one, they went around the table. Surely you don't mean me, right, Jesus? It's not me, is it? Is it me? One by one, around the table. And as we sit in this scene, we're going to consider the despair of the disciples. We're going to consider Judas. And we're, last of all, going to consider Jesus. So first, consider the despair of the disciples. Jesus had said before that he was going to die. He, he says in Mark 10, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. So, The disciples knew that Jesus had to die, but they couldn't have imagined that it would be one of them who would give him up. Notice the contrast between the disciples' grief at hearing Jesus' betrayal and the chief priests in verse 11. The chief priests were, what's the word? Delighted. They were so happy that Judas would, would betray Jesus. But the the disciples, they were horrified. The disciples, their hearts broke. The the disciples' hearts were so committed to Jesus, so tender to God that that even the thought of sinning against him, of of betraying him was reason to grieve. They each said, is it me? I hope it's not me. We learn here from the disciples that The evidence of a tender heart towards God is a sadness at even the thought of sinning against him. The evidence of a tender heart towards God is a sadness at even the thought of sinning against him. So I have to ask you, how tender is your heart towards God this morning? As Christians, we know that our salvation is eternally secure because We can't lose what we didn't earn. So so I firmly believe that as a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot sin like Judas, but we can grieve him. We we can hurt his heart by sinning. We can harden our hearts to his voice. So when you sin, can you say with David in, in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It was Martin Luther when he nailed those 95 theses to the church door. The very first thesis was this. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, in saying repent, 
intended that the whole life of his believers on earth should be repentance. The whole of the Christian life should be marked by repentance, a, a humble sorrow at the fact that we are great sinners in need of a great Savior. The despair of the disciples is instructive for us. Let's hate sin so deeply that, that even the thought of sinning against God hurts us. Next, consider Judas. One by one, the disciples asked Jesus, could it be me who betrayed you? One by one around the table. Can you feel the tension as it gets to Judas? It gets to Judas, who, who I can only imagine, puts on a sad face and plays church and says, surely you don't mean me. Verse 20, Jesus says, it is one of the 12, the one who dips bread into the bowl with me. One of the most wicked and dishonorable things that you could do in the ancient Near East was to have a meal as a guest, a, a guest, a, an act of supreme fellowship, and then betray that person. So ancient readers of Mark's gospel would have understood the, the profound disgrace of Judas. We see here too that, that Jesus is referencing Psalm 41 verse 9 in which David writes, even my close friend, someone I trusted, who shared my bread, has turned against me. Scholars tell us that David wrote Psalm 41 when his son Absalom staged a coup and, and drove David off of the throne. There was a split in the nation of Israel and you were either on Absalom's side or on David's side. And as the kingdom was splintering, David's close friend and counselor, Ahithophel, he deserted David and he joined Absalom. Ahithophel, the man who deserted David, ended up hanging himself. By the way, just, just like Judas. So, so you can see that Jesus is, is showing that Psalm 41, verse 9, has fulfilled this Passover evening in the upper room. Now, it's also important to see that, that Judas could have repented at this moment. Scholars tell us that he was probably sitting to the left of Jesus, a place of honor. And it would have been the perfect place to repent and confess to Jesus in private. None of the other disciples had to know. He, he could have felt the weight of his sin. He, he could have said, I'm sorry. I messed up. I'm not going to do it. I, I repent. And the same is true for us this morning. If you would not consider yourself a Christian, you, you need to know that, that Jesus sees you and that he knows you. He sees every terrible thing that you've ever done and he loves you. He loves you. And you have the opportunity today to say, Lord, I don't want to live against you anymore. I don't want to keep sinning. I don't want to keep going this way. I want to turn. I want to put my faith in you, Jesus. I want to trust you for the forgiveness of my sins. The fact that you are listening this morning is proof enough that Jesus is pursuing you. Will you believe him? Will you trust him even today? The sad thing is that Judas didn't. He, he instead hardened his heart and he betrayed Jesus anyway. What can we learn? 
I'm not going to linger here long, but we can learn at least three things. First, we learn that from Judas that it is possible to be affiliated with Jesus, but not love him. It's possible to be affiliated with Jesus, but not love him. Judas was in Jesus' inner circle. Judas walked with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He preached the gospel. He had miracles done in Jesus' name, and yet he did not know him. Judas did not love Jesus. And it is entirely possible to be born in the church, raised in the church, married to a Christian, have, have Christian parents and godparents, have an affiliation with Jesus and not love him. To, to have a, an affiliation with Jesus and not be saved by his blood. The second thing we learn from Judas is that there are sins that are worse than physical death. There are sins that are worse than death. Jesus, with these sobering words, says in verse 21, but but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Jesus is using hyperbole. He's saying something so strong in order to make a point. Jesus is communicating that there are sins that are so grievous that physical death would be better than than committing those sins. For example, Jesus in Luke chapter 17 would say, woe to anyone who causes someone to stumble. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So, So Jesus says that physical death would be better than leading the young or those young in faith astray. I sometimes pray, Lord, if there's, just, if there's any circumstance in which I would turn away from you or I would renounce the name of Jesus, would you just take me? Would you just take me before that happens? So in this way, Judas serves as a warning for us. And lastly, uh, Judas teaches us that the love of money is powerful enough to blind us to the value and worth of God. The love of money is powerful enough to blind us to the value and the worth of God. As Judas weighed the offer between 30 silver coins and the life of the Son of God, he he chose the coins. Judas weighed the offer and he thought that 30 silver coins were of greater value than the life of the Son of God. That's why Jesus said earlier to the rich young ruler in Mark 10, 25, he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's a reminder to us, don't love money. Don't set your hope in riches. Loving money has the power to blind us to God's infinite worth. So we have considered the disciples. We have considered Judas. Finally and best of all, let's consider Jesus. Jesus has prepared this upper room for his disciples. He knows and I'm sure feels the the sorrow of the fact that Judas, his close friend, will betray him. He says in verse 21, "The, the son of man will go just as it is written of him in scripture. Jesus, knowing scriptures like Isaiah 53, and Psalm 22, and and knowing all the Old Testament signs and symbols of sacrifice and the Passover lamb, knowing all of that, Jesus, with holy confidence, can say, 
I will go just as it is written of me in scripture. Jesus knows that, that God has been writing for thousands of years the story of this night, of this sacrifice. This isn't just another Passover festival. The, the Israelites had been preparing and sacrificing Passover lambs year after year after year. Have you ever considered the significance, the fact that Jesus was crucified during the Passover? Or that in our text, Jesus walks into Jerusalem as the Passover lamb is being prepared? It's because this Passover, while men were preparing their Passover lambs for God, God was preparing his Passover lamb for men. This Passover, while men were preparing their Passover lambs for God, God was preparing his Passover lamb for men. Jesus is the Passover lamb presented by God, sacrificed for us. He's not just the fulfillment of the Passover. Jesus is the reason God instituted the Passover in the first place. He is the unblemished lamb, spotless and sinless. He is our protection from the coming judgment. He is the firstborn slain for us. His blood covers the doorway to heaven. So much so that, that Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 can say, Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed for us. Hallelujah. Which leads us to the main point of the text and the main point of the sermon, which is this. Everything has been prepared beforehand by God. Everything has been prepared beforehand by God, even the betrayal of Jesus. Jesus walks into Jerusalem on the last night of his earthly life, trusting in the purpose and the promise of God in scripture. Jesus walks into Jerusalem confidently, knowing that he has an upper room prepared for his disciples, knowing that, that Judas is going to betray him. He knows all of that. He knows that he will soon become the Passover meal. J Jesus isn't backed into a corner. He isn't caught off guard by Judas's betrayal. Jesus strides into Jerusalem with the full weight of history behind him. And Mark is trying to get us to see that he's here, that the Lamb of God that we have been waiting for is here and nothing can stop him. And he has the authority to say the Son of Man will go just as it is written of him in Scripture. What an encouragement for us to know that, that God is not arbitrary, that, that every piece of evil and suffering in your life is measured and purposed and planned in God's sovereignty. God is not surprised at what you're going through. God isn't sitting in heaven wondering when a pandemic's gonna end. The one who sees your life from beginning to end is preparing everything for your good. 
God's purposes and plan in your life cannot be thwarted. Do you believe that this morning? Do, do you believe that, that God can take something as evil as Jesus' betrayal, as evil as the death of the Son of God, and use it and transform it and, and shape it into his saving purposes? Do you believe that? Are you leaning on the promises of God in Scripture every day, knowing that, that what is written here will come to pass. I've been praying for you. And I've been praying that, that as you walk into the busyness of this week, the busyness of the next day, that you would know that there, there will be pain, there might be trial, there might be suffering, there might be persecution, but that you would also know that God, he's on the throne. And he is in control. Let's pray together. Lord God, you see all things. You are in control of our every breath. I pray, Lord, that we would walk into this week confident of your purpose and plan for our life. I pray that we would trust you that we would lean on your promises with the full weight of our lives, that we would stake everything for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would endure suffering, knowing that you are making all things new in your son. We pray, Lord God, that you'd be with us, that you'd help us to believe you this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, Richard, and thank you, Nathan. Now, the amazing grace of our master, Jesus Christ, uh, the God of peace, equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a super day.